This is the first time I think I'm doing the show having just gone off like a 30 minute Peloton ride. So I'm probably going to be super hypey. I don't even know. Oh man. <laughs> I, I always threaten to do that. Like go for a run before we do these. But what I usually do is take a nap and, and then <laughs> <laughs> a nap and a gummy usually. Right. Well, the gummies happen half an hour in. So not yet. Okay. <laughs> Ah, cool. All right. So we got Parker here. I, I swear at one point I'm probably going to call Parker PT. I'm just going to like totally forget. By the way, Parker, when you get up here, is it like Parker S. Thompson as in like Hunter or is it just sort of like an accident that happened? I don't know. Also, Parker, I don't know if you've, how much experience you have with Twitter spaces, but you will need to be on a mobile device. I thought you usually send people your um, prep. Uh, I guess I just assumed, you know, He's like an OG, yeah, so he knows yeah, all the things. Yeah, yeah, By the way, yeah. do you see the little magic wand down there now? We all have access to the soundboard. I'm sorry, everybody. I'm going to do this, but it's going to sound horrible. Oh, that's not so bad. That's my. That's much quieter. Before there was like screaming. Okay. Mm. There you oh, go. Okay. Yeah, see? I like see. That. Yeah, that's. Uh -huh. <clears throat> all right. It's, it's a little softer though. Okay, great. Parker's up. Okay, sorry about that. I have I have not done this from my desktop, and I was I thought I thought I'd be prepared and have my nice microphone and the whole thing. I don't know. I, you know what? It's it's one of those things that I'm still really kind of annoyed at. And if um, Elon goes and fires seventy five percent of Twitter staff, I don't know if we're ever going to get a good Twitter Spaces experience in desktop. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> sorry, <laughs> sorry to break your uh, your hopes and dreams. Yes. Well, listen. Let's let's not uh, let's not uh, <laughs> yeah. Let's not jinx it. Let's not jinx it. Derail ourselves on that one. Okay. Um, well, welcome, Parker. Um, uh, Brian, you want me to just kick it off and we'll just dive in? Yeah. If you're if you're good to go, Parker, are you okay? Oh yeah. Yeah. Let's All right. Do it. Let's do it. Welcome, everybody, to the Tech Meme Ride Home Experience for Thursday, October 20th. Uh, it's been a couple of weeks since we've been on. Uh, this is sort of a slow season, I think, for the show, but as ever. Lots of stuff going on in the tech world. Um, Brian, a couple weeks ago, maybe even longer, I think prognosticated, which is the appropriate term here, <laughs> uh, <laughs> reading the tea leaves, uh, that there was a, a kind of vibe shift going on in the VC and investment space towards AI, and that uh, AI essentially would eclipse or replace kind of the, the hot darling of the I guess uh, the tech world last like last year, which was crypto NFTs and that whole jam. And so I did, I did go ahead. Kind of do that. I, I, yeah. I want to frame it. First okay. of all, uh, Parker, please introduce yourself in whatever way you want. And then please let me frame how, okay. how I want this to, to go down. Sure. Um, for folks who don't know me, Parker Thompson, um, I spend my time investing in startups. So I do some enterprise, um, uh, enterprise SaaS investing at Seed uh, with a partner, a very traditional fund, small fund. And then I run a fund that uh, is more like an index fund that sits on top of AngelList. So that's a little bit funkier where I get to look at all of AngelList deal flow. And then we try to invest in about, about a thousand companies a year and about 40 or 50 funds. So that gives me the ability to kind of look across the ecosystem and see um, see what's happening at more of a bird's eye view. Ah, uh, yes. Since you said that, um, I'm going to blow up your spot a bit because ding, ding, ding. I, I'm going to, I'm going to frame it this way, which is, so, uh, we recorded that episode the second to last day of September. It came out October 1st. And I said, uh, Hey folks in web three and crypto, I am concerned that all of your, uh, 
people that are have been blowing up your spot on Twitter, <laughs> the VCs and whatnot, are going to turn their eyes, like the eye of Sauron, to AI. And then this week, I'm not saying I'm a genius, but it's become a meme. But you're so implying that you're a genius. It's okay. You can do that. Okay. Mm-hmm. However, um, Parker, you just said you have more insight into you know, the, the investing space than just about anybody that I know. I didn't, I didn't say that out of just like, um, you know, sticking a finger in my mouth and holding it up to the wind. I, I started to see more AI pitches coming my way. So is this a meme or not? Uh, All of a sudden the energy, I, I did the two big stories about the two big raises in AI this week, what are you mm-hmm. seeing in terms of um, the the energy around um, the AI space right now? So, I, what's funny is I think that there is definitely a lot of excitement because there's truly interesting stuff coming out. I mean, you see this all these consumer products that are just phenomenal and fascinating. Um, I have not seen that many. AI startups raising money because I think the kind of things that are really fascinating are are, are pretty rare, right? Like the, the, this is like I call these things spaceship technology, which is to say, like very rarely you see a startup where they show you their product and you're like, holy crap, this is like you just took it off a spaceship. It's so crazy, right? Um, I feel actually like. Uh, there was much more. There were many more startups calling themselves AI startups maybe 2015 to 2017, like there was a joke mm-hmm. then where everybody was saying, oh, we're an AI startup. And what they really meant is, I don't know, we got TensorFlow and we're going to get some data maybe one day and then we're going to do something cool with it. And like, I, I felt like that was a modifier people put on their startups then. So I don't feel like we've quite... I, I mean, it used to be like mobile, pitches. right? Like, oh, well, I'm doing yeah, a mobile, mobile thing, invest. Yeah, I'm doing crypto, so, invest. Like, mo- Mobile was like... Yeah, mobile was a little bit earlier than that, right? But you're totally right. I mean, there was a thing where everybody was like, I'm making a mobile startup. And then there was when we were all making startups for millennials, right? So you do get these waves. Um, It's possible we'll see a big AI push again. But I feel like all the VCs kind of got that out of their system where it was superficially AI five or so years ago. Actually, can we, maybe like we, we, can we start there? Because I think this is actually like so important and I feel like we could and should spend a lot of the rest of the show actually unpacking like that terminology, like artificial intelligence. Yeah, and I want to be clear. I, I want to get the uh-huh. investor part of this out of the way. That's why I led with it because no, no, but that's, that, that's what deeper. I'm asking. Yeah. That's exactly. what I'm asking. So, so like artificial intelligence obviously has been around for decades now. Uh, We've been, I think, whittling away at something that feels, I think, to, to Parker's point, like space magic, or uh, I'll just coin the term, like, you know, from space, or whatever, that's magical. Uh, but it's, yeah, let me, let yeah, me sort of offer this as a, as a you know, a, a, a explanation, right? Um, so I believe it was about 2012 that we saw some major breakthroughs, real breakthroughs in the technology, right? Um, so uh, what Google Like the TPUs and stuff, right? Well, Google bought DeepMind, right? Yes. And um, you sort of, you saw TensorFlow come out. And so it really actually felt like there was a meaningful technical breakthrough around 2012 or a set of technical breakthroughs. And that became available to the general startup populace, right? So I think that's kind of, you start there in the modern area, right? That's that's different than say what was happening in the 80s and 90s and so on. It's the sort of the intellectual successor 
But there was a real fundamental set of technical breakthroughs that gave us more than just, you know, like I remember building software before that where it's like, yeah, we can kind of build like the Netflix algorithm or something, right? But that was about as good as you can get. And now you have more interesting stuff. So I think that there was genuinely a bunch of people trying to figure out what to do with that technology. And that turned into kind of a hype wave in the, you know, the years that followed. Like I say, VCs kind of didn't understand the technology, got excited about it, and we were funding different stuff, right? I looked deeply at that, and kind of my aha moment personally was looking at it going, oh, this is just math, right? And we all have the same math. So the math is effectively open source to kind of, you know, uh, steal a phrase there, right? So we're all using the same math. Some people are better at it than others, right? Um, and then there's data, right? And data is really what differentiates these things, right? Like, um, so I think the tools were very primitive in 2013, 2014. I did a little bit of investing in tooling. I think the tools are actually quite a bit better now, but still you can't take, you know, a Ruby on Rails engineer and build, you know, open AI, right? Like the tools aren't that good. The tools are good enough that someone like me can take TensorFlow and build something that I couldn't have built maybe 10 years ago, right? So I, I don't know if that helps in terms of a framing, but I think if you're looking at startups today, the reality is, uh, what's really interesting is being built by PhDs and people like me would be building things that really aren't that interesting. But if we could get a proprietary data set, maybe I can build a valuable startup if that makes sense. Right. But I'm not going to show up with spaceship technology and just make something awesome by crawling the web. Well, I, I okay. I, I do definitively want to get this away from the, the framing of, of investing in it. Um, sure. Sure. Do you feel like, uh, I'm going to bring it right back. I I said like, you know, uh, on the show this week that, um, you know, it feels like these could be just games and like toys in the same way that certain things in crypto haven't like panned out into real companies. But at the same time, what we've seen with these generative uh, AI tools and, and platforms that have come out like the, it, 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 it's, it's the first time in maybe five or six years since like the chatbot uh, era of, of excitement about investing in that sort of thing that I, I, I've been like, okay, wow, this is, this is really expanding and iterating faster than I was prepared for. Um, so I'm not sure what my question is, but what what is your sense of are we are we on the cusp of something or are we in the middle of like okay this is a step change in terms of um, how AI could actually impact the real world? My sense, and and you know, I'm going to caveat this by saying I don't think I'm an expert in this technology, right? So my sense is that. This is actually stuff that people have been working on in parallel for the last, uh, you know, three or four years. How old is OpenMind now? Uh, or OpenAI, rather? Um, uh, at least five, I think, right? Yeah. Oh, yeah. So yeah. I think people have been working on these problems in parallel. I mean, I, I heard an anecdote about, um, you know, Google uh, moving all of the AI people into the CEO's office, right? Like mm. the CEO sat with 
the AI folks, right? And that's that's been years in the making. So my my sense actually is that this is a little bit like I don't know if you know the story of the you know the four minute mile, right? Everybody thought it was right. impossible, and then somebody right. breaks it, and then a bunch of people do it all at once, right? So my sense is it's more like everybody's been trying to figure out this technology. We've all got our stables of PhDs. And then somebody releases a product and somebody else goes, well, we could do that, right? Somebody else goes, well, we could do that. And so I think that you're sort of seeing this stuff become public, but this is stuff that's just been happening in all of these larger organizations and to some extent outside of them, right? Like there are like the hugging face people and some of these people that are, you know, more independent um, doing the same thing. So I don't know, that's, that's my sense, but that's, you know, I, I, I'm sort of saying that from the perspective of a, you know, a casual observer as opposed to an expert in the space. All right. You know, uh, instead of dancing around it, let's, let's get into, what I want to talk to you about. <laughs> so, um, one of the, one of the, your tweets that actually uh, led Chris and I to um, engage you for for this episode is um, uh, Grady Booch was talking about um, how um, you know a lot of this AI stuff has been trained on um, the open web and mm-hmm. people's other people's content and things like that. And I'm gonna. I'm going to quote your tweet in response to that, and then this is going to get us right into it. It can't be overstated how important the coming battle will be between free culture and rent seekers, REAI. We will either decide computers like human artists can synthesize cultural antecedents and produce things we call new, or that cash much must flow. That culture is now owned. Okay. The way into this is, um, do we know who owns this stuff? Do we know, is this just um, sort of uh, like other things that people have accused um, uh, technology companies of just strip mining other people's kind of... Like, what do we know about... Um, like, if you can you build a business on this if this is based on other people's stuff? And forget about art, there's also like the, the coding mm-hmm. AI and things yeah, like coding, that. Yeah. So uh, yeah, copyright and stuff like that. All right. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and copyright's quite complicated. It would be great to get uh, a copyright lawyer into this discussion. And I say that as someone who wrote a master's thesis on fair use, right? And I, I know enough to know that I'm not uh, an expert in this either, um, which I'm just going to keep saying through this conversation, and then I'm going to tell you you know, how it is. We're definitely um, not experts either, and we get the same thing all the time. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, so, I mean, I think this is the interesting open question, right? And, you know, we've gone through this a couple times, like the most recent one is I, I think people forget that there was a serious debate about whether, um, you know, social media companies that are quote unquote monetizing user data should pay users. And, and that kind of, you know, faded, right. But that happened. Right. And there's a world in which that could have gone the other way where we passed laws that said, Hey, you got to pay users, uh, to monetize them. Right. You got to cut them in on well, it. In some ways, actually there is like monetization that's happening and creators are, you know, making some money. So there has been well, a little there, bit of a correction. Yeah. I mean, I think there's a distinction between creators and, you there's know, not like universal basic creator income, like that hasn't happened, <laughs> but well, it's, it's a crappy income as well for most also of these folks, true. Right. Yeah. Um, and, uh, you know, and I, I, I would nitpick there and say, I think talking about the creator, the creator economy is a little bit misleading. I think it's more, more sort of useful to think about it as the attention economy, right? Cause you don't monetize your creation. You monetize the attention true, that you true. garner for creating. Right. Yeah. Um, so, you know, just, a, I think that's a better framing for thinking about where the value is generated there. Sure. 
Facebook is aggregating the attention and then monetizing it, my data is not that interesting, right? Like it's not valuable to me. It's valuable to Facebook. Yeah, it's worth like seven bucks to Facebook or something. Yeah. So, I mean, we had this conversation. We had this conversation around, um, you know, the streaming days, right? Information wants to be free. We got MP3s and uh, the the sort of the publishing class won that, right? Artists didn't win that. Artists won't win now, right? So the real um, question is, where do we land on this? Do we land in a world where these companies that may or may not be creating giant pots of money, we actually don't know that yet either, um, are going to take some of that money and put it into a pool. And that pool is going to be captured by representatives of these artists that then, you know, give the artists some pennies on a dollar. Like maybe that's where we end up. I mean, you could see a legislative route that goes that way, or you could see us, not do that, right? You could see a laissez-faire approach to it, where these are not considered derivative works, but new creations. Well, well let's. Like, yeah. uh, so we 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 haven't had, as as far as I'm aware, a single lawsuit about this. I'm sure you know three, two, one. It's yeah, it's going to happen today. Yeah. yeah. Um, but so where would the lawsuit be? It would be because I am a. Um, uh, uh, a, a sci-fi artist that it, it, the things that are being generated in Dali look a hell of a lot like my book covers and things like that. And then when I can prove that y- you trained your model on my art, then that makes sense. Um, is, is that what you're expecting to see? Or, or are you expecting the litigation to come from I don't know. Uh, I, I, maybe we should leave the like what happens to artists that like can't uh, make a living being graphic designers if this stuff <laughs> takes over. Like, well, there's litigation and there's policy and they're kind of different things, right? So what's going to happen on the technology side is, uh, I mean, I think you saw this uh, person come out and say, "Hey, uh, Copilot stole my code," right? Very clear example. It's like, hey, this code looks like my code. That person has a legal right to sue, right? And I think that the, what's, what's, the tools are immature. So the tools are designed today in a way where if you want to, quote unquote, attack them in that way, you can trick the tools into doing this. I think the tools will get more sophisticated and you won't be able to get them to spit out something that looks exactly like a specific instantiation of a work, right? But now you can. Um, that, that's pretty straightforward, right? You, as someone who holds a copyright, can sue me, someone who infringed your copyright, and exactly, you know, who gets paid how much or whatever is... But who, who's, who's being sued? It, is it the... I mean, this is a lot uh, of stuff. I, yeah, yeah I'm, not, I'm not sure. I think you could probably actually sue both parties, right? Like, I, whether the courts would say that the tool maker is, uh, at, at, you know, mm-hmm. liable or not, I'm, I'm not sure. That's an interesting legal question. The, I think the more interesting thing to me and what that tweet was about was more what you saw in the early 2000s, right? Was you saw publishers, record labels, rolling, you know, Metallica drummers in front of Congress going like, they're stealing our stuff. You guys got to do something about this. Right. And so what I'm actually personally not that worried about the idea of individual copyright owners suing companies or suing individuals for infringing their works. I think like that's just always happened and it's fine. That's not, that's not a problem if you're thinking about like broadly about human progress, right? I think if you're worried about, you know, how do we structure public policy to enable human progress? What is more concerning is the idea that you might 
have people going before Congress and saying, hey, you know those big tech companies that we all hate? Let's just go and take their money and quote-unquote give it to artists, right? Because then you end up with a policy situation where some of these tools then become illegal, right? And that that is where you kind of... Well, and, 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 and some companies have tried that, you know, with Google scraping the web, as they would say, or whatever. I mean, it has... We're, none of us here are lawyers, but that that hasn't ever been solved, right? Like, basically, you know, uh, the whole reason that Google got started is because the web became the greatest, like, <laughs> a giant data set that that anyone could ever imagine. And and people in the late '90s in academia were like, you know, mathematicians are like, oh my god, this is amazing. Like, have we ever settsettled the fact that these open data sets are out there? Yeah, look, we have robots.txt. We solved this problem. This problem was okay. solved in the early 90s. If you don't okay. put your shit in the search engine, make a robots.txt. Well, we but a lot problem. of the stuff that is actually being used in the public crawl and to train these models didn't, like there wasn't sort of awareness of a robots.txt per se on some of those things that are being hoovered up in I that think process. Want, they want their cake and they want to eat it too, right? Oh, 100%. They, 100%. You know, uh, I'm not saying people are rational. Like, please. Yeah. So certainly we can go back and, you know, iterate on robots.txt, but I don't actually think that's what anybody wants, right? Like if you made a better robots.txt, no one wants that, right? What they want is the giant pot of money that they're not, they don't have access to, right? So, so wait, so I think we're having two, maybe three simultaneous kind of, you know, conversations or threads here. One is this question of money and who gets paid for essentially what are derivative kind of output or, or work that can be generated as a result of these massive data sets being hoovered up at a scale that previously wasn't, uh, I, I have a hard time imagining, contemplated by mm-hmm. a copyright regime, you know, historically. You know, previously mm-hmm. it was like, I wrote this thing, this other guy's plagiarizing me, you know, mm-hmm. I should get paid, you know, because I put the original work in, therefore my creative work is protected. Now we're doing things, you know, at hundreds of millions of, you know, scale, and we're using those as almost a... Um, like a heuristic or a um, just mathematical equation to generate more stuff that is you know similar to the things that came before, and so it's not any one of those particular contributions per se. It's kind of mm-hmm. the soup that is generated from those creative works that allows us to create the models like GPT three, etc., to then produce what ostensibly could be considered new new works, new creative works. And then there is this question of well, who gets paid in this model, and who should get paid, and then also who gets to monetize it, and I think that creates a very interesting question because it, it, it's 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 very much like an Aurora Boris in the sense that you're talking both about the the what did you call it the attention economy I was thinking well, about I, the passion economy yeah I, let me suggest that um, I actually think like who gets paid is a more important question than you're really talking about because that's okay. not the end of this right because if people have to get paid on something right okay. then there's a bunch of stuff on the internet that can't just can't exist. Like I, I always like to think about like it, it, it says something about our public policy that we could have a hackathon over a weekend and make a much better streaming music client than exists today that you can get on your phone. Right. And the reason for that is because if we're not constrained by the law, we can do all sorts of cool shit that you just can't, effectively do because of the fact that certain people need to get paid in certain ways. So I actually think the, the, the public policy around... Sorry, but I think that's that's kind of an interesting and good example because are you talking about that media, you know, the music that would go into that streaming service or are you talking about the UI and the interaction that lives around it? Because in well, some ways... For, for, for example, mm-hmm. um, you have a 
a right. You, if we had a radio station, we can play anything we want, right? Um, sure. If you have a streaming service, you actually have to go and do individual licensing deals for all the music, right? So I can't get my Garth Brooks on Spotify, and I'm very angry about it, right? We just sure. make an app that has Garth Brooks and the Beatles and Taylor Swift and whatever, right? Um, the the public policy here matters in terms of what kind of art can be created. Another example would be sample, right? Like sampling was, we were sort of discussing privately this concept of a platform shift, right? Like sampling for a very brief period of time was just a free for all and anybody could do anything. And the Beastie Boys made some amazing albums. And then that became illegal and you can't do that anymore, right? So there's a lot of art that can't be created in the first place because of how people get paid on these things because of the public policy, right? So mm-hmm. I, I think it actually, the, the, who gets paid matters a lot more to what gets created than I, I think maybe your original frame was suggesting. Oh, well, I guess I, what, what I'm trying to like piece apart, you know, is the degree to which things are generated and, and that are able to be generated from all the things that exist. For example, you can't copyright a musical note but you can copyright perhaps a sequence of musical notes. And then mm-hmm. that sequence will show up in many, many songs, but it's not like the people who put, you know, five notes together the very first time are going to get royalties forever and ever. Like that's not really how it works. It has to be sort of a substantive original work. And, well, and I, and that's really changed over time as well. Right. Mm-hmm. I mean, think about the 12 bar blues, right? Uh-huh. The 12 bar blues is an entire genre that is exactly the same song. Right. I don't think sure. people really understand the extent to which, the way that we think about intellectual property has radically changed in the last 40 years. It has fundamentally changed, right? Like if, I, I would highly recommend, for example, the Bob Spitz uh, biography on the Beatles. There, there are entire sections about the Beatles just ripping off people wholesale, right? We don't yeah. think of the Beatles as plagiarists, but they were because culturally that was much more acceptable than it is today. Culture has really shifted on this. And I mean, we can all, you know, shake our fist at Disney or whatever, right? But mm-hmm. this is what I, this is why I think we're at such an interesting time. Um, because you're talking about like, are, are these algorithms creating new things or are they ripping people off, right? we haven't thought about this at all. It's an exciting time because we haven't accepted, we haven't sort of um, converged on a, a, a common mental model of, of this process. Right. So there, okay. there's a so, so I think this is getting to something interesting, right? Because part of this conversation is, is a bit about like who gets paid. And then there's a question about sort of fight clubby, like over what time horizon, you know? And so who gets paid sort of in the short term and the immediate term based on, let's say the model of the last 40 years versus the VC model where you're thinking about, you know, seven to 10 years, how is the marketplace being structured differently? And so part of the premise of this conversation is looking back to a year ago and thinking about how the economy and money was going to be rewritten by crypto and NFTs. And then now we're either in the build phase or that kind of like fizzled out. We're not quite sure. But now we're sort of moving over into this other world of AI and generativity and the fact that there's so much compute power that's available and needs to be applied towards something that generative models can be applied to work, to creativity, to art. And I think what I'm very interested in is whether there is a kind of, and, and not all VCs are, you know, as sort of insightful, I suppose, but thinking about a future model in which work and creative work and creativity and generativity is thought very differently because there's a generational shift. I, I guess like, is that necessary for these investments to actually play out? Or 
will we somehow inhibit the next generation of creativity that is brought on by these new technologies? Because the stuff I'm seeing is mind-blowing. The, the types of things that people are able to create that they've never been able to create before, like it does feel like there is something of a Cambrian explosion happening now in that world that I don't think is going to go, you know, the genie's not going back in the bottle, right? Yeah, well, we'll see. I mean, look, if, if, you, <laughs> if you put on your VC hat, right, like right. it's incredibly rational to just make this bet, not knowing the answer to the question. True. How's the culture going to react? Because you just roll the dice, and if it goes to zero, that's fine. You did that 20 times. So it's incredibly rational for VCs to fund these things in an environment of extreme uncertainty, right? But the answer to the question, do these things become big businesses? Or sort of, there are multiple things that need to happen for these to be big businesses, right? I think the cultural conversation, like what is the metaphor that we, we collectively choose to adopt for this technology uh, that then informs the policy that th- those will become the ground rules mm-hmm. that then these businesses have to operate under, right? Um, like we, YouTube is a good example, right? I remember where I was standing when I heard that Google bought YouTube, right? I thought it was too. just crazy that they mm-hmm. bought this uh, infringement machine, right? And it obviously mm-hmm. wasn't. It obviously made a lot of sense. Um, but that was an environment of extreme uncertainty. And then we moved towards a set of ground rules, right? And that worked out quite well, I think. Um, we are in an environment of uncertainty. If we decide, for example, that these algorithms are not capable of um, unique production, that they are just ripping people off, as you said, right? Then we're probably going to move towards a world where um, we steer a lot of that money to creators. We're very hostile towards the technology. And that's an environment that looks a lot more like, um, you know, investing in music. Like, very few people were willing to invest in music and there's been almost no venture backed um, music startups, right? Spotify is the notable exception, right? And RDO, there were a few others, but but effectively music after Napster was a digital wasteland, right? And the reason it was a venture wasteland and the reason it was a wasteland was because as a culture, the Lars Ulrichs of the world won Mm -hmm. And the technologist lost, right? So I'm very interested in this question of, you know, how are we going to, sh- how are we going to sort of figure out what the right metaphor for, for this is? Uh, Brian, did you want to weigh in here? Yeah, I want to, I want to take it a little sideways for a second. <laughs> Please do. Um, in, in the sense that, um, and I'm, I'm coming back to your, your tweet thread, um, that because Chris and I have talked about this, like you said, you used Dolly yesterday to generate a base image of a thing and a style, and then we in quotes iterated. I think that's an important thing to think about too, because this is a tool like anything from Adobe, like it, like a word mm-hmm. processor. Like so, at, at what point we're we're talking about the tool was was formed based off of in theory other people's creations but then in actual functionality it is a tool and we can get into this too in in terms of like whose jobs it's going to be taken away but you can't you have to be intelligent to use the tool the right way to get (laughs) something quality out of it right and so in the same way that like i'm no good at um photoshop but other people are so to what degree are we talking about once it becomes a tool, 
then the creativity is from the inputs of a skilled person using the tool. BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Have you heard you can listen to your favorite news podcasts ad-free? Good news. With Amazon Music, you have access to the largest catalog of ad-free top podcasts included with your Prime membership. To start listening, download the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts. That's amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Yeah, no, that makes sense. And I failed to make something that was useful because I'm still not good at Dolly, right? Um, so I, I do think that's a good example, right? These tools that Dolly has for folks that don't know, you can create an image and then you can iterate on it. You can draw boundaries and like expand it. You can erase things. And so the tools are fairly primitive still, but it, it will turn into Photoshop. It's going to turn into something quite interesting. And I agree. There are going to be like, Microsoft questions. just announced this week that they have a tool or was it last week? Whatever. That, yeah, it's like being built into Microsoft that. Designer where they're actually bringing it, it, this stuff yeah, in. And exactly. then Microsoft put another, what, like $50 million, $500 million in OpenAI. I mean, clearly... Well, this is the thing that I'm seeing, and and you know, Brian, to your prognostication, like a bunch of money is going into these startups, and I think what I'm trying to understand with you know your clairvoyance is what is motivating that. Is it just because you know we're in kind of a dry season and there's not a lot of else you know to invest in, and there's a lot of hype and interest? I know I don't think progress? it's about it. Okay. I don't think it's about a dry season. Yeah, Parker, go first, because I have thoughts on this. But Parker, you, okay. you yeah. I, No, this is highly rational, right? This is genuinely, genuinely a generational set of technologies. And it's an exciting time because, like, you forget, uh, looking back, the sort of the fog of war, right? We are at a moment where... Just we're we're gonna look at this moment and it's gonna we're gonna be going like who was the MySpace who was the Facebook whatever right um, so these companies all have like Microsoft has massive amounts of money on the balance sheet the great mm-hmm. cash flows totally it's incredibly rational for them it's incredibly rational for VCs to make a bet that could be a thousand x but might be a zero right like we should all be making these bets as when we put on our venture capital hats um so i i think that no one knows how it's going to turn out but it doesn't matter this is just rational behavior that's why it's so exciting as technologists right let me let me let me ask you something about this though one thing that i want to understand and and i know this is a little bit speculative but i think it also is rational that there are a number of things that are happening with greater efficiencies with regards to just CPUs, GPUs. I mean, a lot of the GPU sort of power was going to mine crypto. And now that we're moving from <laughs> proof of work to proof of stake, I think. Proof of stake, uh, yeah. yeah. yeah, yeah. Uh, now you've got all these sort of like dormant data centers. And I know this like sounds a little crazy, but we are moving to a world where there's incredible efficiencies being created by these TPUs uh, and uh, whatever the sort of AI focused chips are. And so yeah, my question is like with Microsoft, with Apple, with Google, they are going to continue to develop this compute power. And so they want to keep having, you know, kind of like this carrot out ahead of their horses to keep them running faster and faster. And so this is a perfect application of the, that 
latent investment that they've already made in those data centers and systems? I don't think that's quite right. I mean, okay. I, I think for one, when you really start getting in, when we figure out what the use cases are, yeah. we will build custom chips that only mm. are useful for those use cases, right? And you already see, like Google has built custom AI chips. There are startups that are building custom chips. Well, that's like, new. That is, like that was not uh, something being not, done. That's not new. The, the people hmm. have been doing this for years. Um, How many years? Uh, I would say on the order of five-ish years. Yeah, I that's seen... not years. Like, I mean, we're going no, back to I mean, like OpenAI and DeepMind. Not, and... not, not decades, but years. Yeah, yeah. yeah, um, yeah. So they, they, people are building custom chips for certain applications. I think Google builds a lot of custom hardware. That's a little bit different than like the GPUs. I would, I would, I would actually be interested. I don't know the answer to this question. Um, there are cryptocurrencies that were mining mm-hmm. on generic GPUs and, and cryptocurrencies that are mining on right. ASICs that are only relevant to those cryptocurrencies. I'm not sure how much capacity has been, quote unquote, freed up by the crash in cryptocurrencies. I, you, I would believe it if somebody told me there was a lot who was an expert. And I would believe it if somebody who was an expert told me <laughs> that there was almost none. Right. You, might, you might get both answers. Yeah. yeah. Oh, well, no, I mean, I'm just saying it like if we ask an expert, we might hear either answer. Right. So I, I don't think it's that I don't think it's that like. You, you you can't build a perpetual motion machine, right? You can't just say we're going to invent hardware and then we're going to invent software that uses that hardware because that's efficient. You actually need to be making applications that people want to use, right? So I think the more interesting question is like, are these applications A, that people want to use? I think the answer is probably yes. But then B, it's like, well, okay, but how do we build businesses out of them? And C is how do we build defensible businesses out of them, right? So these are more like, again, these are like VC hat questions, so we don't necessarily have to go down this route. But those are questions that I think are relevant to um, to VCs. Yeah. Um, before, uh, I, Chris, uh, and the back channel, yes, please bring them up. Uh, okay. Before we do, real quick, um, let, me, let me frame one more thing, and then we should open this up to the audience, because I think there's a bunch of people in the, in the audience that are interested in this thing. Can we also throw down the marker for the concept of who loses here and is it the artists? Is it the graphic designers? Chris and I have already talked about this a couple of times and people have framed it. Whereas like, again, and I even said that the last time I, I, I spoke where it's like, you have to be good at it in the same way that you have to be good at using Photoshop and things like that. So it's almost like going back to like the original Licklider paper of like, uh, maybe for the interim period for the foreseeable future, we have to have a priesthood of people that know how to, you know, horse whisper the machines and things like that. But, um, Mm -hmm. I'm just curious real quick, Parker, what are your thoughts in terms of if you're not only a, a graphic designer or an artist, but I don't know, uh, a software engineer are, what do you think about if these tools really are on the cusp of this revolution? Would you be concerned for your job? Basically, put it starkly. <laughs> um, I don't think so. I guess maybe I'm just not. Maybe I'm just don't haven't thought enough about this. Um, I think that uh, creative people will be uh, able to find things to do. Um, I think that maybe the, if I had to pick a loser, this is maybe a lame answer, but like occasionally I go on Fiverr and like pay somebody to Photoshop some stuff because I'm not good at Photoshop. 
maybe I can now go to Dolly or something for that. And, you know, but I'm, I'm still, when I go to, I mean, build that's a, definitely, that's definitely coming. I mean, Canvas is going to be yeah, completely. Yeah. When I go to build a web application though, yeah. like when I'm building a startup, I'm going to hire a human and they're going to use these tools. There was literally a product be- launched on Product Hunt today that, you know, you put in sort of where you want your business to be and like a term and it generates a whole page for you and it sucks and it's bad, but it's, it's directionally where people are thinking. I just can't imagine that it's not going to happen. Anyways, like, yeah, I, know no, that, I don't think go I have ahead. a good, good answer. Like, ask me again in six months and maybe I'll yeah. have a good answer for you. Yeah. This conversation is difficult because there's a lot of things I think that are happening. And I think we're also seeing a lot of different things and making sense of it in different ways, perhaps because of the way that we relate to those you know, different skills or talents. So for example, as someone who kind of came up doing web design, seeing a machine being able to do those things, or for example, seeing um, there's a tool called Diagram, which works uh, in the world of Figma, and you apply GPT-3 and OpenAI technologies to it, and now suddenly you have applications that are being designed that are as, you know, I I don't want to say like as good as anything else, but now we have have 2 million examples to draw from that it's not that hard to design a relatively reasonable interface for software that used to take you know months and super dedicated super talented individuals to do so the fact that we can just ingest these patterns and then spit out kind of pretty good you know marginal copies if not improvements is interesting i think the question then goes to how generative can this stuff become and can it actually get better at doing these things than we can like you said at the very beginning i think your one of your core insights is that the internet turns everything that humans used to do into math and computers are always going to, by definition, literally their name is going to outcompute us. So if they can get better and faster and more capable at doing those things, they will. And then the question is, what do we sort of point that fire hose at? And then what happens to the human capital and to culture as a result of an interaction with such a complex system? Well, let me give you let me give you an interesting anecdote. I think it's an interesting anecdote. Sure. Um, uh, uh, so uh, we started investing the access fund at AngelList in 2015, and our thesis was, hey, we could use a bunch of data to um, make decisions at scale that would give us really high performing venture portfolios, right? And it worked, right? We've been doing it for about seven years now, almost eight years now, and. It's phenomenal, right? And Sorry, are you saying ago, these are investment decisions using AI? Yeah. So, okay. so, well, no, we're not. We're, oh. So we're using the data, but then I am the computer, right? So I go and I <laughs> okay. make decisions, right? Um, <laughs> sure. But AngelList built out a data science team maybe mm. 2018 or so. Mm. And I had a, just a real funny conversation at like a Christmas party after a couple drinks with the guy who mm. runs the team where I'm like, no, it's like I, you guys should put me out of business, right? This is great. Let's just make an algorithm that can mm-hmm. do the job. And the guy kind of looked at me awkwardly like, wait, you know what I'm trying to do? I'm like, no, I'll go sit on a beach. I'll go do something else. Right? It'll, <laughs> It'll be, be great. Fun, right. Um, and they spent a number of years trying to figure this out and they actually built a quantitative fund, right? So we're about a 30% a year fund. Their fund's probably about a 15 to 17% a year fund. And the, the problem with what they're doing, they sort of begrudgingly said, like, we admit you guys have some alpha. And I said, yeah, well, we have alpha. And there's a couple of reasons we can beat the code, right? One is there's a bunch of data that's just not structured, right? And these, these uh, machines cannot work well on unstructured data in a lot of cases, right? And the other thing is, like, if you look at the current venture market over the last six months, 
the market is doing things that it has never done in the data set that we have, right? Or another example would be uh-huh. new right. markets emerge, right? New problems emerge, and we don't have data to backtest against, right? So there, for relatively constrained problems, for relatively structured data sets, um, there's not going to be a lot. We, we're, humans are not going to outcompute uh, algorithms, right? Um, I think what ends up happening, though, is I've taken all the work that this data science team does, right? So our historical results are about 30%. Now I've got a bunch of data that I didn't have because the machine learning is running there and giving me these interesting insights and we built some extra tools on top. So maybe I'm a 35 or 40% fun now. So I'm leveling up my game, right? So I think we are going to be able to take these products and simply change the nature of our work. But humans are in many cases, maybe not all cases, but in many cases, going to be able to add value that's different on top of that in ways relative to what we were doing a few years ago. So hold on, just just clarify real quick, real quick. When he says uh, 15 versus 35 or whatever, you're, you're saying that your returns are basically double what the, the, the bots are. Um, you're, when you say thirty percent, you're like an IRR or something like that in terms. Yeah, of yeah, that's what we're looking at. But yeah. but, what we're, but what you just said is you're standing on sort of the bots as well. You're using that as an input that you're 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 using to to achieve your. 30%. Yeah, yeah. A good. Um, I don't know if you know this, but like if you look at chess, right? So um, the best the best computers can be now be the best humans, right? But the best humans can take code and beat the best computers, right? So human plus computer beats computer. Unless, unless right? the that humans is, are cheating, you know? <laughs> yeah, it's, yeah. Uh, well, no, right, but that's right. the thing. It's like you take a human and some anal beads, and then you can go and beat the computer, <laughs> you know? Yeah, if the computer uh, used anal beads, we'd, it'd be totally over. <laughs> yeah, we'd be screwed. No, but two computers <laughs> can't beat a human plus a computer, right? So there's something interesting there, mm. and I think that's the, that's sort of the, the, okay, that's but, the world but that let we're going to figure like, out. What the thing that I wanted to point out, though, and I think what you're saying is super relevant and, and valuable, which is that, you know, it's it's a little bit like, um, God, what's the baseball thing? Um, you know, Moneyball. Thank you. Yes, Moneyball. So yes. in certain cases, as you say, when you have kind of a fixed game, they're like, like chess, like baseball, where there's a set of known rules, you can really optimize to a certain point. And then there's like a breakthrough thing that happened, like you said, like the four minute mile kind of thing. I, I guess what I'm wondering about and, and the nature of this conversation is trying to sort of understand and see if there are adjacencies or things to learn from what's going on in some other fields, um, you know, like investing, you know, with robo advisors and stuff like that, where there is historical data to look at. But of course, it's always hard to predict complex systems going forward. So if they've never seen market dynamics like are currently going on, um, then of course they wouldn't be able to predict them and they're going to act in a way that is unpredictable and perhaps actually very, very poorly. My, I guess my, my question, thought, or insight here is thinking about the aesthetic arts and the amount of aesthetic content that has been generated to please the eyeballs of humans and mm-hmm. that our ability to synthesize and generate new forms from what has been done before or similar to what has been done before actually kind of will be enormous and also perfectly fine. And we don't actually need humans to be remixing that culture. I'm not saying that it's the end of culture or the end of art or the end of new creativity, but that we will be able to create so many different things that will please the Pinterest algorithm that we really don't need to worry about sure. you know, photographers going out and taking amazing, you know, 
staged photos and whatnot, because we can actually generate them. And, and I'm going to take this opportunity also to bring up Miguel, um, who is working in this space. I think he, he can at least provide a little bit of, well, first, Miguel, come up and introduce yourself. Tell us a little bit about what you're working on, and then tell us where we have some of this conversation off based on <laughs> your lived experience. Right. Hi, Chris. Uh, hi, everyone. Um, yeah, we just actually announced our, uh, yes, we're done. Uh, uh, we're building, we're building AI, computer infrastructure for AI. Um, and I think there's a broader and under, usually underestimated um, aspect about this whole thing is that um, GPT-4 is not going to be built. Um, I'm sorry, say, say it again. Clarify that. The next version, we're as, this is as good as it is. Okay. What, what is this good as? AI yeah, is this good as this? Yeah, it's not going to get better unless there's you know some fundamental breakthrough. Um, hmm. Because look, AI is as computationally expensive as crypto. Okay. Uh, one way to understand stability AI's race is that yeah, there is a hundred million dollars. Oh, hold on, let, let me let me pause you. You're you bringing um, something up which which we haven't mentioned yet, which is the stability yeah. diffusion or stability yeah. AI, uh, so, yeah. which is yeah. actually an open source project it's you can download the source code on github yeah. has just raised 50 million dollars and so this is one of the things along with the investment from microsoft oh, 100 million dollars okay yeah, yeah. It, a lot of money yeah yeah uh, and look and a space. lot of that is going to go to compute bills um ai is a for compute bills yes a, um yeah um, it, ai is a rare case of a um how do you say um it's a capital intensive software industry so you have to think of it in terms of hardware and hardware level expenses um, and the same thing happens with Jaffer. You know the 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 you know the counterpart of the smartness of AI is that it requires an exorbitant amount of compute, and we chips are not going to get better because the the more um, so is that the computers are you know as they're small and as fast as they can possibly get. So I just want to temper some expectations in that um, we're used to things getting better and better with time. This is not going to happen with AI unless well unless the company that we're working on are successful. Uh, but but you know it's 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 uh, I don't think people realize how expensive this is. Okay, or, so, so wait, well, I, I want to pause you though. You you you, you said something interesting, and I, I pinned pinned your tweet. Uh, you said that GPT four will never be built, and first yeah. that requires us to define why GPT three is such an amazing achievement, and. You know, at least in you know 2022, we may think or believe or be led to believe that GPT-3 actually may be you know the the most the largest language model that we'll ever need to do all of our things forever because building GPT-4 at a similar you know rate of improvement, I mean, essentially would would require like quantum computing or more money than the human race actually has produced or something. Yeah, yeah, yeah. we actually did an estimate that is forthcoming to get America at NYU uh, in, in the next coming uh, coming days. It would take 149 years. And three hundred fifty billion dollars in expense uh-huh. uh, to build something that would at least reach expert human accuracy, right? So, so when people talk about okay, this is going to be the future of work, it's going to fully replace programmers. Uh, you know, it, it's 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 hard to think about the scale are uh, in, in, intended, and this is a lower bound. It could get even worse. Um, so, you know, it might be as good as it gets. And this is a dangerous. You no, know, uh, people should temper expectations about what these things can do. As a result. Wait, wait, wait. So, so when you say temper expectations, you're saying that, like, are we at the the, the height of what we can do with AI, or do you think yes. we're going to keep getting really? Hmm. Yeah, yeah. Because again, the the ultimate um, fact, limiting factor is compute. Um, um, and uh, and and again, like, okay, just you know, just think of a vision, for instance, right? Um, you can have so, you look at the failure of self-driving cars. Self-driving cars are not going to get better because they're already at the limit of what computer, how good computers can get. Uh, and this might be a controversial thing that you know in the chip community it's well known, 
right? So no amount of innovation will get away from the fundamental physical limits that we've reached. So we have to have fundamental new ways of computing, which is what we're working on. But, you know, just aside from, from, from what we're working on, the industry right now is, is you know, it's facing a similar problem to crypto, right? That you, you, start, you start needing, you know, the same amount of electricity that the entire country of Australia or something. That is the limit that we're going to get if people really want to scale AI. Uh, OpenAI, for instance, has a massive problem, which is that they have thrown in a $100 million supercomputer just to serve these few users. They cannot just 10x their users because they require a billion-dollar supercomputer, which not even Microsoft could, could afford, right? So, so it's very important that people realize that AI is not magic out of anywhere. It's because it requires, look, you know, the, the minimum, it requires about the same equivalent of 100 billion or sorry, 100 trillion operations per second, which is roughly the number of operations that a human brain is doing right now. So if you want to get to human-level accuracy, um, you have to have an exorbitant amount of compute that I don't think, you know, the world is not, it's not right for. Okay, so, so hold on. So you're, you're building this space. You've just announced yesterday what you're working on. One, yes. why are you doing this? And two, who will be your customers? And then three, what are they going to do with the thing that you're ostensibly going to build? Sure. Yeah, we're building this because we, you know, we want to make this dream happen. You know, fully general AI will be the most impactful measure of humanity will ever build. Probably the last invention that we'll ever build. But, you know, we saw this massive computer problem and, and we tackled it in, in a fundamental way. Um, so, you know, if this hype is, 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 is what it is, we will be the main compute provider for the entire world is, is what we're working on. Okay. All right. I'm going to bring, uh, PT back, uh, yeah. PT, see, I did it, uh, Parker back, um, <laughs> and just get, you know, kind of your, your reaction to this. Cause here we have, you know, founder and Miguel, have you, have you raised money to, to fund this? Yes, we, like, have, we have announced and yeah, but yeah, we have. Uh, can I, um, yeah. So. Can I ask you, Miguel, like, um, so one of the problems that I understand to exist in AI, and I think this is what you're speaking about, is uh, the approaches that we're taking are incredibly energy intensive relative to, for example, how children learn, right? So is what you're saying is that you're trying to take fundamentally different approaches that are going to change the amount of energy we need to produce the, these kinds of results? Is that what you're saying your startup well, is doing? Well, energy is, is, is the same way as compute, right? Or, or cost. Sure. Yeah, like yeah, energy yeah. is what balance the cost. Um, uh, well, our approach is a bit different. It's about you know, doing the mathematical operations in a different way. Um, so there, there's you know, it's essentially an algorithmic approach. It's a, a smarter way of, of doing the same fundamental operations because all there's something that you were talking about earlier that, you know, the, the these are numerical operations that, that you know, the, the bottleneck to, to AI compute as we know it today are essentially matrix multiplication operations, just mm -hmm. multiple multiplication annotations. Uh, and, you know, our background comes from mathematics and, and algebraic geometry and uh, so, uh, numerical computing, um, where, you know, this problem is faced a lot where, you know, you have to, for instance, simulate a galaxy with a hundred million stars. Mm -hmm. Well, you know, it takes the, it, it's, that grows with the square of the amount of operations. So it would take, you know, even all the supercomputers in the world. Ten times combined would not suffice to even do one single step of a of a galaxy, simulating a galaxy, right? So, so there are smarter ways of doing this amount of computation, and that's what that we're bringing. But that's something that the industry hasn't done at all. Um, uh, you know, the people assume that you know the, that the hardware is what it is, and we just scale harder, but we can't scale harder anymore. And you know, it and you know, we again, aside from our technology, as the industry is right now, there's no way that we can get to general AI. 
Yeah, I don't even think I, – I mean a non-goal for me in short term would be right. you know, okay. general AI, right? Like we're, we're – I don't – I wasn't even thinking that we're going to get there, right, or that we're, we're on the precipice. It uh, well, seems like when you – three shows for the first time that, right? And we have now with Palm, um, the, the, uh, Google Stars model, 500 billion parameters, we have superhuman – sorry, approximating medium-human performance and extra-human performance in some tasks. Um, so for instance, like stuff like, stuff that feels pretty, really human, like, you know, um, detecting parody, right? Or, or sarcasm, uh, or even programming, you've, you've seen copilot, right? So we're beginning, you know, like, any, I don't think any AI researcher would have thought that this was even feasible before GPT-3. GPT-3 changed everyone's expectations. So yes, I think, you know, it's a matter of scale, uh, to get to general AI. And, you know, within the next five to 10 years, we'll have machines picking up your phone. And machines uh, editing other machines, machines doing your, your taxes, machines, um, you know, big, big, you have to bigger with machines. That science fiction world is, you know, the hard part was to get to GPT-3, right? Uh, but then it's a matter of scale. Okay, so, uh, so Parker, Parker, I want to hear your point. Oh, I, you know, no, I don't, I don't really, I'm just curious. I'm fascinated to have an expert here to ask questions of, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so um, I'm so I wasn't thinking about general AI, right? Let's, I'm just assuming for the sake of this conversation that like, we're not talking about that at all. I mean, we could talk about, you know, the crazy people in Google who think the computers are sentient or whatever, but that's, I just don't believe that to be, uh, correct. Right. Um, I'm curious to ask a question, uh, about what you're saying here. When, when you look at something like Dolly, um, my mental model is that the, um, the, the compute intensive work is primarily about generating the models on the front end. And then the, um, the output is relatively scalable. And I heard you say something, uh, and I want yeah, to make sure not, I didn't misunderstand. Not. So can you, do you have a, can you make up a number for when I go and I create an image on Dolly? What does that cost them? Do you know how many dollars yeah, that costs well, them? Well, it would, it would take for them actually, it would take them about 200 billion operations running on a $100,000 um, supercomputer, and it would take them about per hour, I can't per hour, it would take about $3 per hour to run. Um, uh, and so, and that would serve just, uh, yeah, I mean, a single image would take cents uh, for that particular operation. Right? Yeah, okay, no, that's helpful yeah. to understand because as we think about what do we do with these things and what are the, I mean, we just came through the era of Holy shit, my Uber is expensive now because VCs aren't paying for it, right? Yeah. So exactly, yeah. as we think about this market, it's helpful to think about well, what yeah, is this going to look like when I'm paying for it, right? <laughs> and, and one way to understand OpenAI's uh, race is just like stability AI's is that their compute bill is enormous. GPT three would happen because they got a hundred million dollar, um, uh, uh, essentially, you know, a credit from from Microsoft in exchange for a license for GPT-3. But that's running on one of what was then one of the largest computers in the world. Uh, and that thing requires GPUs, which is a new, it's a specialized kind of computer that is oh, extremely okay. expensive. But yeah, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pause you on that. Yeah, um, sorry. Because, and, and I, I really appreciate you coming up and, and elucidating this. And yeah, uh, also, really interesting. congrats on your launch. It also sort of, it does, I mean, indirectly sort of support what I was bringing up before, which is that, you know, these are going to be hugely computationally intensive, like, applications. And so it does, you know, sort of entrench some of the existing clouds if these products are actually built, you know, for Microsoft's or Google's or the rest. But let me let me pause this part of the conversation because I want to bring up um, our, our good friend of the show, Mike Nano, who happens to be in an Uber 
uh, well enough. <laughs> so yeah. we, we, we will see how his audio is. Um, but I've, I've pinned, I believe I pinned a tweet um, about something that Mike wrote recently. So Mike's been on a tear ever since he came on our show. I, I take all credit for this, uh, but also since, since he left Spotify. <laughs> um, and he, he wrote about something that I think is actually very germane to where we started this conversation. And we're talking about um, like culture and cultural production. And specifically, Mike was writing about essentially sort of like the creator supply chain and how the economics around that is changing um, and was asking the question, you know, is the creator economy, which we were so hyped about last year, again, during the whole crypto craze, is that dead? So I don't I don't want to like spoil the whole thing. But um, Mike, do you want to come up and just sort of like provide a bit of your um, you know, insight and we'll see if we can weave these conversations together? Sure. Hey, everyone. I am indeed in an over and I will give you guys some credit. Um, for kicking off this writing tear I've been on because uh, it kind of all started after I was on your show this summer. And I think maybe you inspired. Yeah, I think you inspired me to like want to get some more thoughts out there into the world. So amazing. So thanks. So thanks for that. Yeah, um, appreciate it. <laughs> so so yeah, I did. You know, I wrote this piece, published it yesterday. Um, I, I've I've just always been a person who's been passionate about creativity. I was a musician growing up, a photographer, I was into art, you know, I, I, I was a, you know, wrote code, I built a company. I'm just like a fan of people sort of making things. And, um, I, I had become sort of like disillusioned by this whole notion of the creator economy. Cause it, it felt like the more and more people talked about it and we thought about it and companies got funded, it was like all of the attention and the focus was going on this very, very small subset of companies that were serving an extremely small subset of creators, what I like to think of as the 1%, basically the people that are already making money, the people that already have distribution, the creator economy was building sort of this financial infrastructure for those creators. But if you think about the the rest of the creators, the 99% or 99% of people, they're all creating too. Like we're all creating. We all create now every single day. We send tweets, we write emails, we write blog posts. We take photos, we take videos, and then there's this whole demand side on the other end, right? Where people are consuming all this content all day. We just consume constantly. And I actually think it's way more interesting to think about the, the supply chain or the, the, the businesses and the business models that get built around everything else, the 99%. I think the creator economy, that 1% is just kind of not that interesting and kind of small. And of course, all of this stuff gets propelled by everything. It sounds like you guys were talking about when I joined, like, you know, AI coming in here and democratizing creativity even further, machine learning, making it more efficient for people to find the content and the information and the media they actually care about. Um, frankly, something as simple maybe as just 5G internet becoming more uh, accessible globally and throughout the world. Um, I, I think media and creativity is sort of, truly, truly ubiquitous at this point. And I think we are all creative. And I think if you really think about all of the software and products and services that power creativity, we're talking about like a multi-trillion dollar opportunity, uh, not just maybe this small little thing we've been calling the creator economy the past couple of years. So anyway, that's basically what the piece was. Um, maybe it's kind of obvious to everyone that we're all creative, but um, I, I just thought it was worth acknowledging. Guys, we don't have to choose between hair growth and our health. Nutrafol's drug-free whole-body approach promotes hair growth from within. No compromises, just better hair. Nutrafol is the number one dermatologist-recommended hair growth supplement brand with over 1 million people seeing thicker, stronger, faster-growing hair with less shedding. 
With Nutrafol, building a hair growth routine is simple. Purchase online, no prescription or doctor's visits required. Free shipping and automated deliveries ensure you'll never miss a day. See results in three to six months. While many supplements rely solely on ingredient studies, Nutrafol clinically tests final formulations to ensure their efficacy. In a clinical study, 84% of men showed improvement in their hair after six months taking Nutrafol's men's hair growth supplements. Take the first step to visibly thicker, healthier hair. For a limited time, Nutrafol is offering our listeners $10 off your first month subscription and free shipping when you go to Nutrafol.com slash men and enter the promo code RIDEHOME. Find out why over 4,500 healthcare professionals and hairstylists recommend Nutrafol for healthier hair. Nutrafol.com slash men, spelled N-U-T-R-A-F-O-L.com slash men, and enter promo code RIDEHOME. Want a better way to simplify your business finances across expenses, vendor payments, and accounting? If so, Ramp could be a complete game changer. Ramp is the corporate card and spend management software designed to help you save time and put money back in your pocket. Ramp gives finance teams unprecedented control and insight into company spend. With Ramp, you're able to issue cards to every employee with limits and restrictions and automate expense reporting so you can stop wasting time at the end of every month. Ramp's accounting software automatically collects receipts and categorizes your expenses in real time so you don't have to. You'll never have to chase down a receipt again, and your employees will no longer spend hours submitting expense reports. The time you'll save each month on employee expenses will allow you to close your books eight times faster. Ramp's also saves you money. Businesses that use Ramp save an average of 5% the first year. Ramp is easy to use. Get started, issue virtual and physical cards, and start making payments in less than 15 minutes, whether you have five employees or 5,000. And now, get $250 when you join Ramp. Just go to ramp.com slash techmeme. Ramp.com slash techmeme. R-A-M-P dot com slash techmeme. Well, I think, I think the reason why, one, I wanted to get you up here, and two, it, it sort of dovetails into this conversation we're having, and it actually started kind of, one, why is there a bunch of investment happening in kind of the AI space? And then we were also talking about creativity and culture and who gets to monetize it and who has a right to participate in the generative output of a lot of these AIs that are being created now and being used. And I think this dovetails into what I've been seeing lately with some of the like super interesting stuff that's been created by applying those algorithms that again are trained on past creative work. I mean, it's, it's sort of like, it is like, I hate to use this, this metaphor, but um, just like the raw material or the oil, you know, the unrefined oil or the crude, I suppose of creativity to create all sorts of new things. Now that we have this combustion engine, which is artificial intelligence. And so bringing those things together. And this is, I think where your point comes in, Mike, that if everyone kind of imagines themselves as, as participating in this creator economy or a creative economy, like, what does that mean? And how do we, if not distribute wealth, like distribute access or privilege or experiences? And uh, Parker, this is something that you, you had brought up uh, kind of on the back channel that that was really interesting was just changing the whole mentality around, I think, ownership economics and scarcity economics. And that if we, again, and I don't want to get too much into like UBI space, I still don't know really what the concept is for how we support humans nurturing their sort of embodied needs, you know, their natural needs. But if the kind of asymptote of, of, of human culture is to enable everybody to experience their God-given gifts or creator-given gifts or however, you know, whatever deities you prefer, uh, then if that's what we're moving towards, then what you guys are both saying is sort of like bookends of the same kind of concept. Does that sort of land or resonate? 
I guess I, <laughs> I guess I'm not uh, sure. I understand the the sort of the the framing. I mean, I think we, if you're saying, hey, this is really exciting technology because it's going to enable us to do uh, new and interesting things, create more. Absolutely. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, I think, you know, you can tie, I, I, I'm not quite prepared to tie that into UBI and whatnot, but I, I do think that it's interesting that we are, I mean, we are all creating, right. I think people get hung up on this idea of like creating as something you do and get paid on. Right. Mm-hmm. I, I, my worldview, my frame is, uh, we, we create because we need to create, not because we get paid to create. I think that's, we get caught. This is why I'm so focused on the policy, right? Cause I think mm-hmm. the policy often starts with the premise of we need to pay creators so that they'll create. And it's like, mm-hmm. well, no, we never did that until the last, that's a very recent thing, right? People weren't making cave drawings because they were getting paid. Right. Um, we just had to do it. We want to create. So I'm or, excited. Or, or, or there was no, there was no, there was no like comprehensive framework for it. Like you had patrons, you had, you know, right. occasionally governments paying for it. And let, okay. Let me reframe it for you, Parker, in a way that I, I think you, you were talking about earlier in the sense that, um, <clears throat> Uh, back to your tweet about like using a pen and paper uh, to create an image, using uh, Photoshop to create an image, like using tools to do something, right? Are you a believer in, it's not that these tools will come and destroy the artist. Are you a believer that in the same way that robots have never actually destroyed entire industries, new industries be created. Do you know what I'm saying? Like, is this again, sort of that man computer symbiosis thing where we don't know yet? Cause it's so simple. So early. I don't think you can destroy. I, I just think mm-hmm. regardless, there's no world in which computers will ever exist destroy. in a way that, where you know what? That's the question. No, well, well, maybe computers can't create, can't destroy creativity. That's it. Well, we, we want, you know, look, I am a really crappy musician. I just suck. Right. But I love to do it. I get on my guitar and I play it and I like to do it. And I do. It I mean, everyone friends. loves auto tune, right? <laughs> just kidding. Yeah. So yeah, exactly. So, it, it, you know, we, we, I think humans have a need to create, right. And so the computers will do their thing and we'll keep creating. And I think in the short and medium term, it's much, much harder to look further out. Right. Um, we will continue to create. And in some cases we'll be better than the machines or we will continue to create and we will do it with the machines and with the machines we'll create better things than we could have created on our own. Um, there are going to be cases where the machines can do things, you know, like I gave the example of competing against Fiverr, right? There are going to be cases where instead of paying a human on Fiverr, I uh, spend money on Dolly or something, right? I, 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 you know, this is how technology works, right? It eats the low value use cases and then moves up. And so I just, I'm not worried at all about, I think sometimes people have angst around, you know, the computers taking away our humanity. I just don't worry about that at all. Right. Like we are creators. We're going to keep creating and it's going to be awesome. And if the computers can really, maybe this is looping back to what you were saying, Chris, uh, the real problem with UBI, if you look at the economics of UBI, is that we need GDP to grow. Right. Uh, well, but, by, but that, that know, could like be possible or enabled 
by some of these advances in artificial intelligence. If yeah, no, exactly right. right. Yeah. Right. So wait, so so if we're talking about creativity, yeah, it's precisely the opposite. Which is, if the machines are so good that they can do all these jobs for us, we're just going to sit around and jam on our guitars all day. It's going to be awesome, right? Because the machines will just do the work for well, us. That will be the leisure economy in a way. Like that, that sort of <laughs> ultimate expression of the leisure economy is actually the creator economy, where our needs are met. You know, and the drudgery of the things that we don't really want to do can be set aside you know, to the, to the machines and we can just engage in our creative, you know, pleasures, I suppose. Um, yeah, I, no, Mike. Yeah, no. Yeah. Yeah. I think we, we exist at a time there are mm-hmm. eras and there are eras in culture, yep. right. That reflect on technology. And I think you can see it in, for example, how we write fiction, right? So mm-hmm. there are like dystopian areas of fiction or eras of fiction and then optimistic areas of fiction, right? There's like the Star Trek stuff. And then there's like, you know, the, uh, cyberpunk stuff or whatever, right? We're in an era where people are really negative about technology. We feel very alienated from it. That doesn't mm-hmm. personally resonate with me at all. Mm-hmm. I think it's fucking mm-hmm. awesome time to be alive and it's just going to be better. So yeah, if we can take all the computers and make GDP 10 X what it is, and we can all just hang out and get UBI. Yeah, everyone's just going to like hang out and complain. Like that's probably what it'll be. <laughs> well, yeah, <laughs> They'll just have yeah, more but, creative ways of complaining, uh, but we'll be way better at guitar, you know? I want to, I want to bring it Matt Hartman, actually uh, a friend of mine from Betaworks. Um, Matt, did you want to chime in? Probably a yeah. friend of Michael's too. Yeah, sure. <laughs> I, I mean, I was, I've been listening to you guys. This is great. Um, I don't know if you've moved on from this, but I think that the the, the the disconnect, I think, between what Mike was talking about in terms of creator economy mm. of the de- last decade versus the next decade and what GPT-3 means for it, mm. I think might be um, that the last decade was about distribution for creators and the new era is about the tools for creators. And we were calling things uh, that were for distribution tools. Interesting. Yeah, that's a great point. Yeah, I agree with that. I, I also very much agree with what Parker was saying. I mean, I know like these these conversations are probably great where there's like tension and disagreement, but I, I just want to like pick plus one <laughs> what Parker was saying. I mean, like if look if if com- if computers and AI want to um, want to uh, take away the low value creation from me, like I would be happy to spend my time creating something else, something something creating something of more high value that I don't normally have the time to create. So I actually just think of anything. Uh, it won't, it won't replace the creativity that we as human beings were, were necessarily born to do. It'll just be additive. Like, I think it actually leads to more creativity and more content, uh, and more things for all of us to consume. So I, I agree. I think, I think this is actually going to lead to a better future. You know, one thing that we haven't talked about that I think is interesting, just as we're sort of riffing on this is the way in which these tools can actually provide kind of a, a feedback loop. Uh, one of the things that I guess like that I'm thinking about is one of the challenges that we run into is that there's just not kind of equal access to all the different sort of talent that exists in the world, right? Like if, if Parker, you really want to learn to play uh, guitar, you should really kind of like hook up with like Jimi Hendrix, you know, RIP, but like nonetheless, like bring him back and he can like teach you in a way that allows, uh, whether it's time travel or just like uh, um, talent travel so that you can actually access that resource wherever it is. And AI could actually serve as that mechanism to learn faster. Let me give you a, a very specific example of this. I, I used for the first time a, a, a product that I'll be hunting um, or some version of it soon called Headroom. And it's it's available. You can go check it out. I think it's goheadroom.com. Um, and it was built by and is being built by um, 
Julian, who used to work at Google uh, on Google X, uh, as well as I guess his, I don't know if he's a co-founder or sort of like head of their AI stuff, but he was also from Google Brain. And so these guys have a lot of experience with um, neural nets and language models and so on. And, you know, this type of functionality and feature set, I think, is becoming somewhat more common given the world that we live in with lots of video calls. So essentially what happens is you'll have, you know, your 30 minute or 60 minute call or meeting. And then at the end of it, there's a summary that's provided to you with highlights of the most interesting parts of the call. And what it does is it actually uses uh, computer vision of the video stream that's coming through to measure your engagement in the conversation uh, based on voice tonality, based on your facial expression. I mean, even if you're like looking away, kind of like up at the you know ceiling or something, but you're nodding your head in a way that the algorithm knows how to pick up, it'll be like, oh, this person is actually listening and they're engaged. They're not just like disengaged because their eyes aren't on the screen. So there's a lot of subtlety and nuance in that. But if you can imagine that if you are a speaker or if you're someone who is actually running meetings and you have this as a tool for getting reflections on your contributions, this starts to be a way to actually improve and enhance human capability because most of us don't actually live in a world where we get that much useful feedback. We're kind of like just, you know, fucking around, you know, in the world without that feedback loop. So from an artistic or creative um, potential aspect, maybe humans actually get better at entertaining each other, like, you know, through the real world by actually having uh, these, these types of tools as another layer um, to actually understand themselves. And I don't know that that's something we necessarily like talked about, but I wonder how many artists are actually using this to improve their own capabilities. That was the thought. I mean, I'll, I'll tell you as someone <laughs> who, you know, talks to artists from time to time, you know, they record themselves and listen to themselves and they have serious like a artists. monitor. Mm-hmm. Yeah, serious artists, you know, like I if I remember a friend of mine like going to a show and he's like, Hey, will you plug into the soundboard and record me? Mm-hmm. And we got home and he's like, I'm gonna go hang out over here and listen to this mm-hmm. while you guys, you know, shoot the shit or whatever, right? So uh, yeah, I mean, maybe we can all do that. We certainly don't. Right. I mean, I don't record my meetings and go back and listen to them, but that's <laughs> uh, obviously a great way yeah. to, you know, self reflect. Can I, uh, tangentially, yes. but go for um, it. this is, this is my last, uh, Sort of, uh, uh-huh. Yeah. The, 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 the GitHub co-pilot investigation thing that I know we talked about offline, which was at the top of Hacker News for a while. One of the things that the huge discussion on that was about was the idea of creativity getting muddied where it's, we've, we've been talking about, okay, do I own this? Does the, the algorithm own this or whatever? One of the things in that conversation that I found the most fascinating was what if we're entering an era where no one can tell the difference in the same way that like sort of <laughs> like deep fakes and stuff, no one can tell the difference of what is real and what is that. Like what if this sort of um, blending of AI and human creativity will make it sort of not only incomprehensible where the creativity comes from, but also it might not matter. Does that make any sense to anybody? Yeah. I mean, so, so yeah, I'll just sort of like try to build on, on what you're saying. Cause I saw this thing earlier today and I'll, I'll pin this tweet um, where, so unreal engine has this technology called MetaHuman, um, MetaHuman creator that allows them to essentially create incredibly lifelike avatars. And so what is being done and I'm, I'm seeing this happen actually in a couple different spots is they will take like these metahuman creator things, 
super lifelike. They'll drop them into kind of like a metaverse or, um, you know, Fortnite type experience. And then they'll actually simulate kind of like dance moves or other types of emotes. And you really can't tell when these, you know, whether they're NPCs or whatever, non, non-player characters, you know, come up to you and interact with you, whether they are actually, you know, programmed to interact with you or not. And so gameplay, and I actually think, Brian, you were, you were talking about this um, with your son playing the, um, the Matrix demo. Right, where right. Essentially, like, out of nowhere, he starts just like, I don't know, it was sort of like a Grand Theft Auto type experience, like playing, you know, and what, how old is he? Like seven? Uh, six. Well, it, as opposed to Grand Theft Auto, he was trying to play by all the rules. He was trying to yes. stop at every stoplight, not run into other cars. Yeah, exactly. Which I thought is both, you know, hilarious and genius, where essentially doing the banal becomes the thing that's so interesting because when you're having these banal experiences, but there's almost like no risk to you because there's no shame. There's no kind of like social dilemma that you're running into as to, you know, the social cost of that, that it could actually become something that, that people are, um, I don't know, because like, I guess what I think about a, a six or seven year old now growing up in that kind of environment where everything becomes somewhat fungible, um, it, it will change the types of things that he thinks that he is able to build for and is able to create and is able to contribute because his set of assumptions are going to be completely rebased at a different level than ours were. Is that sort of makes, I know that's a little bit different than what you were saying, Brian, but sorry, that's, that's well, a little mind. bit, but um, I was the one that took the gummy, but uh, Mike, you, <laughs> you, 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 you piped up. Well, yeah, what I was just going to say was, I mean, per, per the question you sort of posed, Brian, like, is it just a matter of sort of abundance and scarcity? I mean, in a world of scarcity, people want to really clutch to the things that they have and they want to claim ownership so that they can extract value from them. Yeah. In the world of abundance, things yeah. obviously yeah. lose, lose value, right? Well, it's no not, scarcity. it's not losing so, value. It is, it, it is what I was saying, like the muddying of, I think in the conversation people were like, okay, I created this. And like, there was like a graphic where it was like the, 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 the internet says, no, you didn't. It's just on the, it's just the thing. Right. You know? So like, is that kind of what we're talking about? Where, the act of creativity in the same way that like memes go out and no one knows who was the first person to do that. Exactly. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Yeah, I, I, exactly. I mean, I, I kind of feel like in a world where, you know, AI generative media is completely pervasive and any, and everyone, anyone and everyone is making content all the time. Maybe ownership, frankly, just doesn't matter. Like, like maybe I don't care that I made this thing and you're using it and you're remixing it. I think, it and I, think Parker, I think Parker, I think Parker was t- talking yes. in that direction at the very beginning of this conversation. Well, it, this I is a great that. example, right? I think that, um, I, again, I, I think that like, this is not deterministic. So we're talking about this, like, Oh, this is the future is going to be a certain way. And we're just going to try to figure out w- which way it is. Memes are a great example, right? Like, we we had a conversation about information wants to be free and mp3 sharing and whatever and we decided no right mm-hmm. that's immoral and that's by you know this is the reaction that you're seeing around this uh, ai stuff right is people who are like that's immoral whereas with memes you could imagine a world like obviously this didn't happen but you could imagine a world where memes were considered immoral and we all sort of we go well like uh, you know, you're well, not or Parker, like you, you were saying, we, we were talking about litigation and things like that. How, we haven't had huge lawsuits of people trying to claim memes and stuff like that. That could have happened. Yeah, that could have happened. It didn't happen. It's, I mean, you could, you know, we could come up with some explanations for why these things are different and why, you know, why this happened. But I actually think it's not deterministic. I think what happens with AI and how we think about ownership and 
creativity and these things. Like right now is the time where we get to sort of put out ideas and everybody gets to chew on them and we get to decide whether this is moral or immoral or whether it's more of a collective ownership thing, whether algorithms can create truly unique things or where, uh, whether they are, you know, stupid and just copying, right? Like this is why now is so interesting and important because we are going to uh, fight a battle that determines what you are allowed, what your children, when they are older, are allowed to create and do for a living. And old, old, we were talking about who gets paid on it again. I think that's like, <laughs> that determines what economic models and what creative models uh, can exist. But like, n- now is a really interesting time to go write your thought pieces because you have a lot of leverage over where the culture goes right now because no one has made up their mind yet. Okay, so so I, I'm going to bring this to a, to a bit of a close, but uh, I, have, I think I have two thoughts. Uh, they're sort of germinating there. One is that Mike has to go and write another piece uh, about this this kind of like direction with some regular like some recommendations for uh, either our lawmakers or for the next generation of people who are going to be writing rules about this stuff. Because as I understand it, there's a lot of people in Washington right now. You know, helping to write draft legislation around crypto and around money and around those things. And what I find so interesting kind of about this, and I guess it's because we're, we're talking about, um, you know, Brian Six-Year-Old, is because if I think back to my experience in high school, and it sort of has become more and more clear to me how this experience really shaped my my life and everything that I did since, as I created my high school's website back in 1999, and I created all the club's websites and, you know, I hosted it myself. I had my own little stupid server. Um, and one of the websites that I created was for a gay straight alliance. Now this is in New Hampshire in 1999, and this was not something that people were ready for. And so as a result of creating this website and putting that, that club, um, that club's banner ad in rotation on my high school's homepage, along with the art honor society and band and all the others, I was suspended because the school, the institution, the structure that existed for my education and for the furtherance of some kind of knowledge decided that it was too dangerous to allow someone like me to be able to interact with meme and culture propagation at that level. And I feel like we're having a very similar conversation to the one that was not really going on back when I was in high school now about these AI tools that there are going to be kids who are writing their college essays using GPT-3. They like, they're going to be kids who are completing art class by using stable diffusion. I mean, a couple of weeks ago, we had this first story where uh, I believe someone tried to copyright or won some art contest that had used stable diffusion, right? It was a new thing that had never been seen before. And now people are trying to put that cat back in the back. And I guess I wonder if, you know, my, my high school principal had been successful in shutting me down and shutting the internet down. And if people in think, thinking like his had shut down this whole world of web publishing, if we would have actually been better off for it, if the Luddites had won, would we be, would it be better that we were all making our own, you know, sweatshirts and t-shirts now, uh, given my life and my experience, I, I would say no, but I think that is the conversations that are happening now. And so if you guys have thought pieces that you want to go right to help people think about and how to contextualize these things that go beyond just who gets to make money from this stuff. I think that would be incredibly uh, valuable. Yeah. Mike, uh, Chris just gave you homework. Uh, I, I'm not sure I'm smart enough to write that piece, but uh, one anecdote I will say is I was hanging out with uh, a person 
tonight who will remain nameless, who is currently in college, mm-hmm. and they revealed to me that lots of students are already using AI to generate their uh, their essays for them. Yep. Uh, are already exactly. happening. <laughs> this is my point, right? I mean, it's, it's a new form of doping. It just doesn't have to be in, you know, biking or something. So, well, no, I, I guess I would say we're going to adapt. Like, education will adapt to this, right? Like, we'll figure out how I mean, to test people in ways that test their knowledge as opposed to. Their but is that the right thing to do, system? or is it actually to put the intelligence? No, that's like, fine. No, but that's fine. Right? We, we, I, I think the right thing to do is to say, "Hey, these tools, like this, like the calculator, right? Like, you don't say we're going right. to ban calculators. You say." Well, some, some make, do. Uh, well, in some contexts, that's okay, right? Okay. Like yeah. you know, yeah. in elementary school, you, you 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 figure it out, and then later on, you design tests for that. I guess my call to action for people who want to go write thought pieces, I think there's two different ways to think about it, right? One is how should the general public or policy people think about this, right? And we've right. sort of talked right. about that, right? Like uh, the other one is how should tech think about this, right? Mm-hmm. What should tech do? We are in an era. Where there's mm. a very we're in a very bad faith era of using yeah, tech, right? That's right. Um, that's right. And so I think, for example, we talked about the GitHub thing, right? Yeah. The problem with the GitHub tool right now is that it was not designed to not be got, right? So it was not designed. It should have been designed in a way where if someone says, "Hey, copy this thing for me, so I can fuck these guys," right? Mm-hmm. Um, it says, yeah, I'm not going to do that. Right. So tech needs to do a couple things, right? One is I think it needs to design these tools so they can't be got so that you're not infringing specific copyrighted works. Right. And that's not that hard. You just need to put it in the backlog and do it. Right. I think the other thing that's interesting, an idea I've been thinking of that I'll just throw out there is I actually think that tech needs to go on the offensive, which is to say, look, when these people pop up, and they say, I'm going to come after you because you're stealing ideas. A cool thing about these tools is that if a specific artist comes at you, you can say, cool, you draw horses. I'm going to go find all the horses that look like your horses because they're just in my corpus, right? Um, so if you want to get into the infringement game, I'm going to come for you. We're going to build these tools to dispel the myth of the independent creative genius because i think it is a myth right i think we'd be much better off as a society if we thought about creativity in a more collective and iterative way and so i think there's sort of a call to action for you know the general public or uh, policymakers, but then there's a call to action for technologists right we need to be thinking a little bit differently about how we build these tools and use these tools and approach this conversation and so you know I don't want to write these pieces. Please, somebody do it, and I'll retweet it. You know, uh, Parker, you you reference the the YouTube history um, a couple times and the Napster history or whatever, but that that problem got solved essentially by allowing s- stakeholders to make money. Right? <laughs> mm-hmm. um, not everyone makes as much money as every stakeholder in the in the equation, but that's that's the reason why YouTube survived when Napster didn't. So yeah, exactly, like, yeah. So like that's sort of the thinking maybe we should be thinking about right now is how to make everybody um happy <laughs> to have no, a taste but that's, of that's not going to that's not going to happen with this. You're totally right. That's a great point that Napster had no way to get people paid. YouTube did, right? Um but how do you pay somebody when you're looking at 400 images of horses and making a novel work? For, for, there's a question of should we pay somebody? I would say uh, hopefully not, right? Like if we can lower the cost to society of creating new art, that's better, right? Um, so we don't want to pay people. 
if we have to pay people, okay, we will. But how do we even think about that, right? There's these 400 horses and we're making a new horse. Do we, hey, like, and the person, and it's, by the way, it's me creating the horse for my personal use. Uh, what do we do with that, right? Like, do am I paying money and now every horse image that I wanted, I used to draw for free and now I have to pay every time I make an image? Like, well, I, wait. I, I don't. I, I want to make a joke about horse ebooks and like <laughs> or something like that. But, so go on. Uh, no, it's, I'm just saying. I, I think that I don't think that we, at least for the tools that we've been talking about, um, there's going to be a model where uh, we can viably pay people that are creating the art that in you know that goes into these algorithms or whatnot. I just there's just not money there. Right. Um, so I think what we're really saying is if money has to change hands, then these tools just aren't going to matter. No one's going to use them. Right. These are the stakes. The stakes are this is a generation of creative tools that are either going to be de facto legal or de facto illegal based on the economics that sort of fall out of this cultural discussion. So the task at hand for everybody listening is to try to shape this cultural discussion in a way that leads to the legality of creative tools so we can all have more art. That's my call to action. Uh, I, I Just to end this, I happened to do a search on AI ethics while we were chatting. And for some reason, the first thing that came up were these two two uh, links that I've, I've pinned to the channel from the U.S. Chamber of, all, of Commerce, of all places, around this bipartisan commission on artificial intelligence. Now, I don't know if it's relevant or interesting, but I think it makes the point that these conversations are happening at the highest level and that whatever kind of goes into their, you know, sort of neural net is going to be the thing that's going to determine how or if people can use these things and if they can use them, if, if they can use them and apply them for, you know, pro-social and positive productive uses or not. So very much to your hmm. point, Parker, this conversation is happening currently. And it is not clear to me, at least, how many of, of sort of folks in our you know world or our community are participating actively. Uh, in those conversations. We're being sponsored today by a company on a product that longtime listeners know I have used for years and cannot literally cannot live or at least work without it. 1Password. 1Password combines industry-leading security with award-winning design to bring private, secure, and user-friendly password management to everyone. Companies lose hours every day just from employees forgetting and resetting passwords. A single data breach costs millions of dollars. 1Password secures every sign-in to save you time and money, any device, any time. 1Password lets you securely switch between iPhone, Android, Mac, and PC with convenient features like autofill for quick sign-ins. All you have to remember is the one strong account password that protects everything else. Your logins, your credit cards, secure notes, or the office Wi-Fi password. 1Password generates as many strong, unique passwords as you need and securely stores them in an encrypted vault that only you have access to. I started using 1Password, what, a decade ago? Join me and over 100,000 businesses on board the 1Password bandwagon. Because right now, my listeners get a free two-week trial at onepassword.com slash ride. That's two free weeks at the number one, the word password, all one word, dot com slash ride. Onepassword.com slash ride. Well, 
When you go through airport security, there's one line where the TSA agent checks your ID, and another line where a machine scans your bag. The same thing happens in enterprise security, but instead of passengers and luggage, it's end users and their devices. These days, most companies are pretty good at the first part of the equation, where they check user identity. But user devices can roll right through authentication without getting inspected at all. In fact, 47% of companies allow unmanaged, untrusted devices to access their data. That means an employee can log in from a laptop that's had its firewall turned off and hasn't been updated in six months or worse. That laptop might belong to a bad actor using employee credentials. Collide finally solves the device trust problem. Collide ensures that no device can log into your Octa-protected apps unless it passes your security checks. Plus, you can use Collide on devices without MDM, like your Linux fleet, contractor devices, and every BYOD phone and laptop in your company. Visit collide.com/ride to watch a demo and see how it works. That's k-o-l-i-d-e.com/ride. Okay, so this is great. I want to bring this to a close, guys. This is amazing. Um, I've, I want got to thank- a, I've got a wrap for you real quick. No, okay. no I'm, I'm saying I have a wrap idea, which is that um, you guys uh, just told me that um, AI will allow college folks to uh, cheat on their exams. And my first startup, EditMeNow.com in 1998, was literally that, except I had to hire a team of 20 to 25 Humans. grad students to do it. So if you're saying that the <laughs> the AIs have taken cheating in college out of the, the equation, then, then... You would never have gotten your start. AI, AI has taken over, and so the, there's no point. Um, let's, let's allow anyone that's been on stage to jump up and, and plug anything, and, and then we, mm. we can wrap Cool. No problems. Just want to say thanks for having me. This is fun as always. That was Michael. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Uh, Mike. Mike. No. Real quick. What's oh? Uh, what's what's your what's your firm that you're at right now? Ah, yes. That's true. You you announced former <laughs> former founder founded Anchor podcasting platform. So that's Spotify for a while, and now yes, I am a partner at Lightspeed. Yes, and, that was uh, that was I think thinking, not known. Thinking a lot time. about this, actually yeah. thinking a lot about creativity and generative AI and all this fun stuff. So, yeah, thanks for the plug. Thanks for coming on, and yeah, and Parker, on. Parker, of course, since you've been here the whole time. Yeah, I've got no plugs. Thank you for having oh, me. I'll plug Parker. He's one of the the kindest and most insightful uh, people in um, the tech space. Full stop. Awesome. And I, I will I will plug um, Miguel's startup, which is at vmind.ai. Uh, I'm sorry, vmindai.com. It might be both. Um, he, he's not on stage anymore, but wanted to make sure that he got a little shout out there. Um, Indeed. Yeah. Well, guys, I mean, I guess we'll have to keep this conversation going. Parker, it was amazing having you. I believe you're actually like, are you in Oakland, Berkeley, or the Bay? No, or? Uh, oh, we are occasionally there. We moved to Philadelphia oh. um, in the in the COVID exodus. Uh, oh. So I'm kind of r- remote going back and forth, but uh, okay. I miss it there. Um, yeah. It is cold as shit here. <laughs> so uh, it, it has gotten that all of a sudden. <laughs> yes. Yeah. I, I, I'll, I'll leave you with this, uh, this idea, which is uh, I saw somebody tweet the other day. It's like, there's a bad season everywhere you go. And, uh, you know, in, in California, it's tax season. So, uh, 
<laughs> Every other but, um, season of Civil Heroes. Wait, hey. we don't, wait where, where are those, uh, Chris, where are those sound effects? Oh, shit. I gotta, <laughs> yeah, remember? let me find it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Oh, it's not a... Um, oh, wait. Mm. <laughs> All right. Oh, <laughs> Sorry. Uh, hey, love everybody. Love everybody that came on. Love everybody that's listening. Uh, love Chris. Yes, right, Chris? thank you. Love you, Brian. Let's um, go. All right, great. Got me sitting. All right. Good night, everybody. Thanks.